Welcome to the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's guest is Raj Jana, who's going to talk to us about learning to think. So here's your host, Arjuna Arda. Hey, welcome back to the Radical Brilliance podcast. My guest today is Raj Jana, who is an entrepreneur, podcaster, um, and a a really passionate student of life and possibilities for the future. Raj is 29 years old and already has embodied so much practical wisdom and maturity that at one point in this conversation, I actually say to him, I want to be like you when I grow up. But you know, it does shine a little bit of a light on the relationship that can develop between people like me, who are known as baby boomers, and people like Raj, who are really post-millennial. It's often thought that when there's a friendship like this between somebody in their 60s and somebody in their late 20s, that the older person is going to be mentoring or guiding the younger person. This is actually not the way that I see things unfolding in situations like this. Most of my friends are actually around 30, and I find that I have just as much to learn from them in different ways as they might possibly have to learn from me. You know, we're at an incredibly pivotal time now where it's almost impossible to assume that things will just continue as they have been because almost everything you could look at in that way is unsustainable now. This is true environmentally, financially, uh, in terms of population growth, just about everything. You can't, we can't keep going on the same trajectories. But the people who are really, to whom that makes the most difference and who are going to really inherit and steward that situation are people coming of age now. And so the decisions they make, the mindset they have, the way that they can be proactive in co-creating something different is much more important and relevant than what somebody in their 60s or 70s or 80s may think. Often on these kind of podcasts, we interview people who have established a track record of expertise over a long period of time. But we forget, you know, that uh, this this old saying, um, in times of rapid change, the it is the learners who will inherit the earth, while the knowers will be fully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. So it's, it's a learning disposition. It's being young and, and, and malleable, plastic in your neurology and your, your, the way your brain functions that allows you to take leadership in times of rapid change. So I'm really happy to have this conversation with Raj. As you'll see, he has all sorts of opinions about all sorts of things, and they're very balanced and stable and mature. So check it out, see what you think, and I'll be here to meet you at the end.
Hey, welcome everybody. And I'm very glad to, uh, to introduce you to a really great friend of mine, Raj Jana, who I met at a conference last year. We've become good buddies. Um, you know, the Raj is a lot of amazing things. The thing that I love most about Raj, Raj is that he's a vocal, caring millennial. So uh, Raj, welcome to the Radical Brilliance podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, having some good times together today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Always good to see you and Almost talk to you. Yeah. You know, I'm going to cut straight to, we've got a lot of good, good things to talk about. I'm just going to bring the page up so I can make sure we're streaming. Um, we've got a lot of things to talk about. I think we're, I want to dive right in the deep end, get straight down to it, you know, because the way I introduce this is um, oftentimes we listen to interviews with people who are who've done a lot in their lives. They're reflecting back. They've written a bunch of books. You know, it's like, okay, now I'm in my 70s, my 60s, my 70s. Now I'm going to reflect upon all I've learned. But those people uh, are going to die at some point. And actually, the, the perilous state of the world is going to be your generation's business to clean up and deal with. So let's just start, you know, at a summary level, like, how do you see how do you see the world that you've been born into and uh, and how do you feel when you when you think of the future um well it's interesting because i feel like the last four five years of my journey i started i became an entrepreneur when i was 24 23 24 is when i made the decision that i didn't want to i i got a graduate degree i was a, a an engineer in my past life started working full-time realized that wasn't for me and i feel like the next five years were a journey of me sort of coming into the roots of who I am and realizing what I, what I want to work on, who I want to be, how do I want to help, what do I want to arrive into. And it's interesting when you think about the world we're inheriting or where I see my place in the world and what do I feel about this in this present moment? What am I experiencing in this present moment? Um, I see an opportunity for all of us to step into truer roles, whether it's in our business, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our communities, whether it's in politics, whether it's in technology, whether it's in investing, whether it's in opportunity creation. I see such a beautiful opportunity for millennials and, and, and younger generations to step into roles that most people wouldn't have had the opportunity to do 50 years ago. I think the onset of technology has given individuals like myself, access to learnings, to teachings, to uh, gurus and mentors who are far away from me. I don't need to be in proximity to learn anymore. I can learn whenever I choose to learn and I can change my life whenever I choose to change my life. And I think that level of opportunity has never existed. So I think I I'm, I'm so excited for what's coming and where we're going to go. I think that entrepreneurs are going to get younger and younger and younger. I think that change makers and solution people who are delivering solutions are going to get younger and younger and younger because the access to technology and the way that we evolve with technology. I mean, I, I met a, a 14 year old kid the other day who was playing around with his phone and doing things that I couldn't even think about doing <laughs> 29. Right. And I'm sitting here. I thought How do you I was think pretty I feel, dude? <laughs> Right. But that's my point though. Like the, the curve is getting, it's, it's growing exponentially. And so the access to technology, information, and freedom uh, is really, I think, giving younger generations the opportunity to, yes, yeah, sure, we're inheriting problems, but we're also inheriting opportunity. And I think that's what I love to focus on, 
right? Like there's a lot that's broken with the world. There's a lot of structures that, that be that could use a refresh on a global or even a local scale. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to also focus on the immense amount of opportunity that exists for anybody who's willing uh, and, 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 and able for the most part to take part in and to take advantage of. Yeah. What do you, what do you see as our, what do you see as the, as our greatest challenges? Like, like you're, you're, you're going to pick all this up and run with it. Um, long after I'm gone, what do you see as the, the, uh, the biggest things we need to tackle in order to avert uh, catastrophe? Well, I think everything starts at a young age. Um, and I think that we're, we're, all of these resources and all of these things are accessible on a, on a they're, they're accessible, but I don't think that children are being given the resources and the support and the nurturing needed to really take advantage or, 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 or be given the opportunities that I think can empower them to be the saviors and be the leaders and be the change that we need to see. I think that we're always fixing the the problem. <laughs> it's a, that's a that's a that's like a general theme I feel like I've felt in my own mm. journey is that we're constantly dealing with the symptoms instead of looking at the root cause. And the root cause for me it, it starts at a very young age. It's children. It's giving children the proper access to education. It's giving if they don't have proper care at home it's making sure parents are taught how to how to give proper care and nurturing it's supporting after school programs it's really to me i think the more children we can support hmm. it doesn't matter in what culture the more children we can empower the more children we can inspire hmm. uh the better off we're going to be long term and i think to me at least we can do more damage at a young age than we can at, at, a, at an age in our twenties. Like I'm grateful. I was born in a very, very, very privileged family. Like my, my parents came to the U S with nothing in their pockets and worked their entire lives to give me and my brother the opportunities we have. And it didn't matter. We, they didn't have any money growing up, but they loved us. They, they gave us care. They gave us, they gave us, nurturing and support and we turn that into my brother's a pilot right now in the navy and i'm here as an entrepreneur and somebody who's so passionate about giving back and helping others but that attitude was created and it was plant the seeds were planted at a young age and so i think that taking care of kids making sure kids are supported and making sure that children have all of the necessary tools and teachings and resources to arrive into this new normal right now we're in a new normal but i feel like we're going to have it's just going to continue evolving giving children the ability to to find themselves uh, uh with the onset of all this information is going to be so important as we move forward so you just you just referenced information you know and one of the one of the things i really see the huge contrast between when i was growing up you know when i was your age you're, you're like 29 right yeah 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 so when i was 29 basically having a computer in your house had just started right so i i bought one of the original macintosh it was a little gray box cost five thousand dollars this little gray box uh. had no hard drive uh it had um 100 i think i had 128k of uh of uh memory you know oh my gosh uh, yeah yeah 
And it, it basically, you could use it to do word processing and really simple line drawing. And it was like a miracle, you know? So that was when I was your age. And you know, look where we are now. So there's been a, a, a few, and of course there was absolutely no worldwide web or internet or email or anything. If you wanted to contact somebody, believe it or not, you had to phone them up, you know? It's interesting to watch a movie like, if you go back to the 80s, you know, if you, if you Google like films made in the 80s and go watch a few films made in the 80s, it's only 30 years ago, right? 30, yeah. So a little more than 30 years ago. And uh, uh, you were born, what, in 91, 92? 91. 91, yeah. My son was born in 92, yeah. So, like, back then, you know, if you wanted to contact people, you often had to send a letter, or maybe you could phone them, but you had to hope they were home, right? Yeah. <laughs> we used to have those little little cassette tapes for, uh, for record, for, you know, for, um, what do you call that, uh, answering machine, right? So now there's massive amounts of information available. But what I've noticed is there is also a much greater possibility for misinformation and disinformation yes. than when I was young, right? So when I basically, you know, previously, in order to be able to influence people, you had to write a book and you couldn't self-publish the books. They weren't, you had to be published by a publisher, which means if you wanted to be in a position of influence, you were going to get on the television or on yeah. the radio or write a book. And you had to know what you were talking about. You're going to be, you're going to be thoroughly entry. Yeah, you were going to be thoroughly vetted. Now, of course, that meant you could say, well, you know, it was a kind of elitist in a way in terms of information, but at least we knew that the people who were talking uh, had, had some credibility. Today, anybody can go on social media and spread any kind of information they want, whether it's true or not. And in fact, you know, there's, there's actually organized campaigns now to spread misinformation for political or even corporate gain. So how does all that strike you? Like, do you, do, you, do you feel like the reduction of attention span is problematic as well as providing more information? It's also problematic that we don't go deep enough? Well, I think that, uh, I think the filtering of information is what I wish we were teaching in schools. Like if we're going back to kids or going back to any of it, right? Like, I think that, and this comes back to what you were saying, the 80s, like things were very different. I mean, the onset of technology has been like, it's literally been exponential and everything has changed so fast, so quickly, and it's continuing to iterate and change and, and grow overnight. So to me, it's not necessary. And the problem is that the people teaching children, the people teaching how to take advantage of how to be free thinkers. I think free thinking is really what I'm trying to push. And I wish was taught better in schools. Um, it's not about the access to information. I think that there's a lot of information out there. But I would love to see kids from a very young age taught how to think. I think that was one of the most useful things that I learned when I first went from engineer to entrepreneur it was learning how to think. It wasn't being taught how to be a business person. It wasn't being taught how to be an entrepreneur. It wasn't being taught how to start a podcast. It wasn't being taught how to do any of these things. It was being taught where to find the information. It was being taught who to trust and how do you know if somebody's trustworthy? It was being taught how to look at varying viewpoints so that you can make an informed uh, assessment about something that you at the end of the day are going to own. And then applying trial and error hypotheses, testing, and almost like an engineering mindset to then deduce a set of results, a set of, of assumptions, or really something that you, or a lens that you can wear to see the world. And I think that that is going to become more and more important. 
And I think that's not taught enough. We're ta- in schools, we're taught how to regurgitate information. Mm. We're taught how to memorize. We're taught how to do a lot of things, but we're not taught how to think critically. Mm. Unless you're going after tough degrees like engineering. Mm. I mean, engineering, like that's one of the most accidental things that happened to me. I didn't really love engineering, but when I went into engineering school, I was taught, hey, here's five things you have. The answer's over here. How are you going to get the answer over here without having all the information? And it taught me how to think. And so I think that those types of skills are going to become even more valuable. Degrees that foster critical thinking are going to become even more valuable. And I think that that's what's going to set children up. If we can start teaching things like that to kids at a young age, then with the onset of information, we're going to learn to make decisions that are rooted in something true. And we're going to teach ourselves how to sift through the crap sift through misinformation and vet things that we see on the internet uh, through a more hardened lens. Mm. It's tricky stuff, you know? Um, I, I mean, how, how among your generation, how optimistic or pessimistic do you feel about everything you've just described in the last two, three minutes? <laughs> I don't know. Um, that's a tough question. I mean, I don't trust I think one of the things I've realized, at least in my journey, is that it's it's tough to wait for anybody to make this happen. Yeah, I love um, that. I think, yeah. it's, I think it's tough. Like, if you yeah. feel strongly about something, then you need to take it in your powers to make something happen. Yeah, and yeah. That requires getting mentored, and 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 it requires self belief too, and confidence in yourself to be able to go and learn solutions and put mm. yourself in rooms to mm-hmm. connect people and. I think right now there's never been a more important time for individuals who care strongly about something to, to learn the skills necessary to make things happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So let's just, let's stay on it. Cause you, you talked about learning who to trust and how do you know if someone's trustworthy, right? Yeah. This is like a, this is a huge thing um, these days. I don't know. Just here's a little just flashpoint for this, right? Just one random example. So there was a film came out the week before last called Plandemic. Did you hear about that? I did. I haven't watched it. Okay. <laughs> I'll <Well>. be honest. <laughs> yeah. You might want to spare yourself. Anyway, but that's that. Let, let's leave that open. But it's an interview with a woman who had, I mean, at least the kind of, the, the contemporary story is, the, 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 the main, the, you could say the, the conventional story is uh, that she had been discredited uh, for various things for, for some research that turned out to be faulty, had to be unpublished, retracted, and then she was arrested for stealing some things from her employer and, and, and fired. So, so there was this interview which presented an alternative narrative. I mean, her narrative, which was very different. And so this, this movie of 25 minutes, it made multiple claims. You know, it was, it was a dialogue between her and the interviewer, made multiple claims, which were over the next few days, very systematically and thoroughly discredited by every kind of independent fact-checking source you can imagine. You know, like, I mean, there are multiple sites which are nonpartisan, which preoccupy themselves with fact-checking, right? So now we had this movie and you had everybody and their aunt, anybody who was a reputable investigator was checking and going, no, none of this makes sense. So then I start seeing posts on social media with with people coming back and saying, well, who's going to check the fact checkers, right? And, and now alternative, alternative fact checking 
but not done by anything credible, done by like somebody called Sally Bates or, you know, just, just some name, you know, that, well, you didn't know who they were or anything. And so we're seeing now an environment where people who've been to Columbia's, you know, to, to a journalism school for four years and worked for a long time and, and, and got a Pulitzer Prize is seen as having no more right to credibility than just a name. And I see that that's, you know, it's an incredibly different thing. And that's an environment now that your generation is growing up in where there's been such a doubt shed on journalism and science and the media that now it's kind of like anybody's opinion is equally valid. Uh, so that I want to just, yeah, I wanted yeah. to reflect back on this question of who do you trust and how, you, how do you know if someone's trustworthy? A lot of people I see at least you know, I, I keep an eye on social media to see where people are at. A lot of people are saying, well, you just don't know who to trust, so I have to trust my gut, which means that a conspiracy theory might be equally as valid as something that's taken nine months to investigate with a team on the New York Times or Boston Globe or something. So how do you see all that in your generation that there is really this, there's this vacuum of credibility now and, and really anybody's opinion is equally valid? I trust consistency. Yeah. Me personally, like when somebody is consistently thinking through something and making their thinking visible, uh, I trust that. Mm. Like I don't trust results. I don't trust, uh, I don't trust any fact as is. I mean, one of my favorite thinkers of our time, I think is Novel Ravikant. Um, Novel is a phenomenal thinker. He's an entrepreneur. He's a philosopher. He's, he's sort of, and he talks about everything. I think that's what I personally, for me, I love individuals I personally love to sort of my vetting process is more so it's, it's over a longer period of time. If I see somebody consistently share perspectives that are intriguing, thought provoking, research backed and, 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 and honestly provocative in some ways, they're taking a stand for something. Um, those are the sources that I'll tend to go deeper into, which then will allow me to make a decision on whether I trust them or not. Mm. Um, so it doesn't necessarily like, like, I, I, I think for me, I, I trust longevity. I mm. trust, um, I trust people that make their thinking visible. Like if Great. you're not making your thinking visible, then it's hard for me to trust where your insights are coming from. It's hard for me to trust the source of your own personal acumen and, like I, I love free thinkers. Like I really, I appreciate free thinkers. I think this is a beautiful time to be alive because the right people don't have to hike up a giant podium to have a voice. But I also believe that in order to, if, if you want, if you want to earn my trust, then I need to see the way you think and I need mm. to hear the way you think and I need to trust the way you think. And that usually happens over conversations. Like if it's, if it's my partners, my partners are constant. Like I remember when I, uh, brought on my partner now for my company. Uh, I mean, yeah, sure. He had all this acumen. He had all this stuff that he had done. Great, great, great. But it wasn't until I got on individual calls with the guy, saw the way that he talked to his team, fact-checked fact him across multiple sources, and then through test projects at him to see how he thinks and how he moves through things that I then decided to bring this person onto my, onto my team as somebody that I would trust to make decisions that are going to impact my life and the lives of others. So I think that's the way I think about it. Like I need to see the way you think. And if I don't trust the way you think, or if I don't trust how you came to an answer, then I can't, at the end of the day, trust you with other things. And 
And that usually comes with the track record. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a giant thing that I'm, I'm never usually coming to somebody for the first time. If I need an answer on something, I go to my partners or people that I trust mentors that I have put my faith in who I have vetted already Hmm. and maybe more knowledgeable about a subject. I'll go to them and ask, Hey, what is your opinion on this? Because I honestly don't know where to think. So the vetting has been done long before I actually go to somebody to get an answer on something. Raj, my brother, you make me cry. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because I'm just so, I can feel my whole nervous system breathes a sigh of relief when I hear you speak. There's, there's a kind of a, a sanity and a groundedness in how you're speaking. It's like when I hear you talking, it's like, ah, if this is who's going to inherit the earth, everything's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, what you're describing is obviously that's the sane way to live, isn't it? You know, that you, you don't jump in bed with the first person who makes you an offer. You, you know, you, you, you test things out carefully and you, you observe someone's way of, way of thinking and the way of treating people. But tell me what you've just, what you've just outlined, which is eminently sane and wise. And and it makes me think that I want to be like you when I grow up. (laughs) No, let me, (laughs) let me, let me ask you though. I mean, do you feel that this is, um, do you feel this is symptomatic of your generation? The way that you're describing, are we stepping more into a kind of calm sanity you're, you're describing? Are you the exception? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I do think that I have more resources at my disposal than the mm. average millennial. I mean, mm. there's a lot of people in their 20s who are still trying to pay off student loans and they're trying to figure out what their next steps are. And I do think that I have done a few things in my life that have allowed me a little more space and peace of mind to then think critically mm. and invest my time in learning from the right people and questioning beliefs and stories. I mean, so I, I think that there's a bit of an unraveling that happens uh, mm. once you leave college. I think that was when it really started for me, when I was out on my own paying for myself. Like when I left college, that's when I really started like kind of forming these strong beliefs about the world. Because until then, like whether you believe it or not, you're still inside of a structure. And when you're inside of a structure, it's hard to form strong beliefs about the world until you kind of throw yourself in there and you start to play inside. Like when you start to play inside is really when you start to see what's real, what's not, you start Mm. to learn how to learn. Mm. And then you start to take what you learn and apply it, which then forms into a form of, you know, experience building and wisdom. And you, that's how you're really building your gut check. Mm. So, you know, I wouldn't, I think, I think the resources are there for everybody to build this mindset and this way of thinking. Mm. I don't think this is taught though. Hmm. This isn't taught in schools, um, unfortunately. Hmm. This is taught from mentors. Uh, if you have great mentors in your life, you know they'll teach you how to think. This is taught through social, like building, building things from scratch. Like I remember when I was in college, I had the opportunity to start a fraternity from scratch. Hmm. Like that taught me more about people, how to learn, how to figure things out than my degree did, right? But it's not. It's not, but at the end of the day, like we don't talk enough about those soft skills. I think soft skills are more important to build when you're growing up. And then when you start 
getting into the actual workforce where you're on your own, that's when you begin to use your soft skills to build hard skills because then you're actually reasoning through what you need and what you want and what you desire and you're, and you're navigating the emotional, physical, spiritual, and mental aspects of mm. life with a little more accountability and responsibility, which is what mm. I think is missing when we're first starting out in school. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you are stepping into as you, as you, as you find your, you know, you're, you're just getting into this thing they call Saturn return. You know, that's really like the next 10 years are going to be like, you know, unstoppable. So one of the things you're stepping into is a society, particularly in America, but it's somewhat global as well, which is extremely polarized in terms of what I, I like to call value clumping. You know, value clumping means that you take, you take all these values, which may or may not logically belong together, and we say, okay, all these values determine one camp. And this clump of values determines another camp. And you really have to choose between these two camps to participate. And that's, that's what's happened in America, in America politically. You know, we've got this highly polarized culture um, where, and sometimes these things are very strange. They don't, nest, they don't logically belong together, you know, because now we've got this bizarre thing where we've got evangelical Christians supporting a, um, a, a, a character who doesn't, wouldn't appear at the outset to be the darling of evangelical Christians, you know, with a lot of history of uh, um, racism and, you know, and um, a mistreatment of women and all sorts of things. So you've got this, this very politically divided atmosphere, which looks, which appears unsustainable, you know, and I, I feel kind of on behalf of my generation, I feel a little apologetic to have to pass this over to you because like we've just increasingly polarized. You know, I don't think there's, I don't think politics has ever been so polarized as we see it today, except maybe in a civil war, but you know, but it's in a way, it's, it, it's, it is something like a civil war of, of, of insults at least at this point. So how do you feel about that? I mean, it, it seems unlikely that we're gonna continue with such a fractured political landscape for another few decades. How do you see us? And, and of course, yeah, just the other piece about that is when you have such a fractured landscape politically, it makes it much more difficult to get things done when it comes to legislation and uh, regulations and so on. How do you see us evolving out of the, the, political, um, the political shouting match that we're at, we're at at this point? Well, I think it's inspiring more people at an individual level to step up and uh -huh. build solutions and create change. Nice. I really, yeah. really, really see that. I mean, I see so many socially responsible enterprises pop up when government or communities can't provide the resources they need. I see people, I see, yes, there's a lot of division and I, and I hear that and I see that and I recognize it. But there's also a lot of, of, of collaboration that happens at the grassroots level, mm. like at the people to people level. At the end of the day, like we may have our differences and those shouting matches may go for hours and hours and hours down a comment thread. But when you put two people in the same room mm. and there's a same and there's a similar problem that everyone's facing, which is either we can't eat or we're losing our jobs or there's some sort of an issue that's bigger than politics that's happening locally. Um, I think that things sort of blend together. Like I think our our shared humanity, eventually, like the shouting match is doing nothing but allowing the collective humanity in all of us to sort of rise to the top. Hmm. And I'm seeing that every day. I'm seeing that in Austin, Texas. I see that with my network of 
of entrepreneurs and problem solvers. I mean, I've seen people step up and do things that I just never thought was possible in times like these to just help people. And I see that every day. I see that, I see that in everyday actions, whether it's people paying for uh, a meal or tipping a waiter or going out there and supporting local business. I just, I see so much good. So to me, the political landscape, uh, I, it's, it's always going to be noisy, I think. Um, and I think that's because that's what the system's been built to accommodate. Uh, but I think the noise is doing nothing but evoking a sense of responsibility in individuals uh, to exercise their sovereign rights and to exercise their sovereign abilities to, to be free and to do uh, what they feel is right uh, for themselves, for their neighbors, and for their communities at large. Because uh, to me, I think that crisis, this crisis is doing nothing, but, uh, and you can call the crisis anything, like, you know, getting a president inside of the office or a, a global pandemic. At the end of the day, like, when Trump got in office, I remember, and I just remember the attitude of the country the day after, like it was, especially for somebody who's a minority, like beyond my political sort of like my political attitudes, like, like it just felt really heavy, like in my communities and in, in that, in that energy. Right. So, but what did that do? That forced people who would not be loud normally mm. to wake up. Mm -hmm. right like mm. this pandemic has caused everybody's lives to be flipped in some way some more than others and there's a lot of carnage being left in the wake of this pandemic and this virus but in all of this the good and the bad i mean the the human beings have stepped up in different ways uh and they're and colors are shining beyond the red and the blue like our mm. true colors are shining and lovely yeah and i trust that i, yeah. I trust that to get deeper I trust that to get louder and I trust people to, once there's more examples of individuals just stepping into their sovereign ability to make a difference, mm. I think that's going to inspire more people to do the same. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's a great answer, man. Um, you know, I think uh, there has been, uh, in previous generations, there has been almost an obligation to pick a side. You know, it's like you, you, you almost have an identity crisis if you don't have a political affiliation. Do you think yeah. that the same is true now with millennials? Do you, or do you see people basically seeing the irrelevance of this kind of um, value clumping? Uh, you ask different people this, you're going to get different answers. Um, you know, like I said, I'm in a unique position where I work with people of all walks of life from every area, from every political background, from every value set. I don't, I work with everybody to create a set of solutions um, that I think are going to serve my customers better, my family better, myself better, and, and, and the community at large better. Mm -hmm. And so it's tough for me. I think I'm a little biased in that I do see, like, I do see people working together and sharing values. I don't see people as readily like like or at least those aren't the people that i choose to hang out with yeah like i don't really hang out with people that are vocally like like defining themselves by any one party mm. i tend to be around people that sort of have a shared respect of humanity like mm -hmm. we're all human beings at the end of the day Mm -hmm. And yes, we may have our backgrounds, we may have our upbringings, but there's a certain level of compassion that underlies our existence. And for me, I've, I've found that to be very loud. Yeah, I found that shared respect and love for our fellow humans 
come up in spades when you're not sitting behind a screen. Yeah. Right. It's really easy to get angry or positioned or, or talk about any one way of life when you're sitting behind a screen, when you put two people in the same room together, there's just love and hugs. There's laughter. We're all inspired and, and, and we're, we're all sharing the same human emotions because at the end of the day, beyond our beliefs, there's humanity. I think there's a shared respect for that. And I think that's going to get louder. And I think that's here right now. What are you, uh, what are your thoughts about the financial system? You know, that's the, the other thing that, that um, if you look at it objectively with a cool head, you know, if, if you, if you, if you have a relative or you know somebody who just keeps running up their credit card more and more and more and more and more, you know that that is not indefinitely sustainable. At some point, something's got to give. You just can't, you can't keep borrowing money forever. At some point, it's going to come back to, to bite you, you know? Um, and we've got that situation now where we've got, a, we've got a, both on multiple levels, we've got a financial system increasingly burdened by debt, uh, which appears unsustainable. So it really looks like within your lifetime, something drastic is going to need to happen to either reinvent that or to make huge adjustments in that. What, what, what do you see? Where do you see us heading in terms of um, the systems we've created for exchange of goods and, goods and services? Whew, that's a loaded question. And it'll probably change, you know, in a week. Uh, just because as a global economy, um, I mean, everything is sort of growing and changing so fast. I mean, China, China's, in, China's probably the most powerful country in the world right now. We just don't say it out loud, but... I mean, the amount of access and resources and the fact that now there's all this stuff around the coronavirus that's stopping them from being a part of conversations that may change the systemic financial systems that exist at large. So I think there's a lot of, I think in order for a mass financial change, there has to be so many things that happen. Hmm. Um, now, as far as goods and services go, uh, when I think about what people value, I think people are going to begin valuing things the same way they always have um, around connection and, 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 and sort of like a remembrance of story. And so like, to me, if you think about where people are going to continue spending, people are going to continue spending in things that make them feel like they're a part of something bigger. Mm. Um, people are going to continue investing uh, in things that make them feel safe, whole and loved. Uh, at, at, a, at a very core level, I think that we're inheriting a lot of debt uh, that is going to create massive problems, mostly problems for people that have lots of money. <laughs> I think that I think that I think the existing systems are going to have to evolve, but I'm not waiting for the financial system to evolve in order for me to change the way that I make money or change the way that I invest or change the way that I sort of navigate these waters of consistent change. Like at the end of the day. I think value is always going to follow value. Mm. Um, and if individuals who are burdened by the financial sort of structures that be, to me, I think one of the most important things you can do, especially in a recession, you are your most valuable asset. Like you are the biggest horse you could bet on. Mm -hmm. So skills, um, tangible things like the way you make people feel, your emotional intelligence, your, your, your intellectual capacity to think through problems and be critical. 
your ability to not let fear sort of put you into a state of panic, which then causes you to make crappy decisions. I think that financial literacy happens at the emotional level. And I think that the better you feel about yourself and the more space you can create between you and the things that are happening around you, the more you're going to be able to navigate and dance inside of a fluctuating financial structure um, without the sort of panic button being hit, which is what really causes bad spending, which is really what causes you putting resources in places that aren't supposed to be put, which is what causes you borrowing money when you shouldn't be borrowing money. At the end of the day, I think most of our money problems actually root down to uh, our, our own physiological needs and our fear of not having or having those. And if we can go back, again, going back to kids, teaching kids, like I still can't believe that they don't have money management in elementary schools, right? Like we don't teach children how to be responsible with money. Yeah. We don't teach kids how to do their taxes. Hmm. We don't teach these things. And so like, we're thrown, we're expecting kids to have all their stuff figured out by the time they get to 22 when they have a full paying job, when that's when they're actually learning. They're learning how to do all that stuff at that point. But at that point, they've also accumulated financial debt, uh, whether it's in school. Uh, they've accumulated all these bad habits from our parents that were alive inside of, like, inside of times where the financial structures weren't the same. Right. Like I remember coming right out of school and my dad telling me to put all of my money into a 401k. That was it. Put everything in the 401k so that when you retire, you can take all the money out. Right. Well, if we do that and we keep accumulating debt, well, at that point, when I get to 50, you know, 57 to 62, and I start pulling money out of there, interest rates are going to be so high that I'm going to be paying more money, getting money out of my 401ks than I am investing in something else. So I think that we need to be careful about who we're getting our financial advice from, going back to vetting the right people, right? Uh, it's not just listening blindly to the one hero in our lives. For most people, it's our parents. Just think our parents know everything, therefore we need to get all of our information from them. I, I'll never forget the best financial book I read was a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Right, yeah. And the premise of the book is, my real dad doesn't know much about money. He's a smart guy, but he doesn't know much about money. I got lucky that I had my best friend's dad who knew a lot about money dispel a lot of beliefs that I had around money. And right there, that book like blew my eyes open to the realization that my dad can be a hero for me in many, many, many ways, but he doesn't have to be a hero for me in every way. Mm. And I think that's the personal responsibility that everybody has to take at some point in their lives to choose who they want to emulate and why. Yeah. And if you do your homework there, I think uh, no matter what happens with the financial system, like you'll learn how to navigate it because at the end of the day, you are the biggest asset inside of a crisis. It's not how much money you have in a bank account. It's not, it's not your job. It's not the people around you. It's you. So, Yeah. Uh, I think a, a parallel to that, a parallel to the financial system being unsustainable, the, the, another thing that you're going to be, your generation is going to be facing even more acutely than, than we are now is um, our relationship to the natural earth, you know, to uh, resources and the, 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 and the um, deplenishing of resources faster than we can renew and also to the pollution of resources that are vital to us. Um, how do you, I mean, how do you think that's going to come down in the next, in the next, you know, nearly 30. So in the next, you know, 30 to 40 years that you're uh, that you're going to be really actively participating. How do you see? How do you see 
the relationship between Homo sapiens and other species, but also the, the natural habitat in which we, which we not only live in, but which we rely upon to, to, to be healthy. So I, I personally believe that, I'll, I'll talk about myself as a shopper. I don't shop or put my money into brands or companies that are doing something awful to the environment. Right, let me just start there. And I think that that mindset, one, it sounds very simple, but it's going to trickle down because millennials, I think I read some statistic the other day and I don't, I didn't fact check it. So don't, don't, don't put the stake in me, but <laughs> I liked what the message, I, I liked what the statistic was implying, which is that two out of three millennials actually care about the brands that they're shopping from. Mm. And the stand that those brands make about the environment, the brands mm. that those that how they treat their employees, yeah. like all of those softer things that make because I mean, think about where I would want to work. If I was a millennial, where would I want to work? Like the work cultures that I'm celebrating are the ones that allow me to take a day off, allow me to work from home, mm. allow me to, you know, do the things that I think elder generations didn't necessarily value. Mm. So I think our values are evolving as a species. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think it's because now we're finally getting to see videos of tons of plastic being dumped into oceans. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if that type of footage was available in the fifties mm -hmm. and was spread around with the microphones behind it, the way it was, I think buying behavior would have been different. I think with the onset of technology mm -hmm. or in the onset of information, we're just able to see more. Yeah. And the result of seeing more, we're starting to care more. We're starting to find out who we can and can't trust. We're starting to, to sort of hold people accountable to being better. And I think that's going to trickle down in much bigger ways. Right now, I'm supporting that cause with my wallet. Yeah. Eventually, people are going to support those causes with their votes. Mm. Eventually, people are going to support those causes with where they invest their money. Mm. And so I think that at the end of the day, the systemic sort of institutional mindset around our own individual responsibility. Like I may not like the average individual, the average millennial may not be able to go and build a huge company that pulls plastic out of the oceans or develop the next technology that, you know, fixes climate change. Like they may not be able to do that, but what they can do is give their money to a company that's doing that. Yeah. Right. So I think that like younger generations, as they get older, are going to get more used to putting their money and their attention towards things that they believe in because they don't have the time, the resources, or the accolades to go and fix the problem themselves. Hmm. And I think that that's going to be a really good thing for not just the planet, but for any social cause or any injustice or anything that's, that's loud um, in today's world. Hey, brother. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, my man? What's up? <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, I really... I really, I feel really refreshed and hopeful uh, connecting with you and not only you, but many people like you. You know, it's a funny thing, but um, it's, this is very obvious when you look at it in a bigger historical context. You know, the, if we could have a Zoom call with someone from the Middle Ages or even from like, if we had a Zoom call with someone from the 17th or 18th century, uh, they would be flounderingly ignorant relative to what we now know. They wouldn't know about bacteria. They wouldn't know about, you know, a gazillion things that we now understand. You know, the, the, their attitude to medicine was just hopefully mis hope hopelessly misguided. It's a lot of things we know now. 
And so it's very obvious if you, if you contrast over a couple of centuries that we are more evolved in our understanding, in the way that we treat people, in all kinds of ways, we're more evolved than, than, than back then. You know, we now, we recognize, for example, just a simple thing, that actually men and women can equally contribute in all kinds of fields. That was absolutely not recognized at all until, really, until the Second World War. I mean, women got the vote in, in 1920, but that was pretty much it. You know, they didn't really get much else. So we've, we've evolved in so many ways. And I would say that evolution has been exponential in the last 30 years. So actually, I mean, it's very obvious to me that I am speaking to a more evolved human being because you came along later. You know, you've, you've, yeah. had, you've had the benefit of all that, in all that time between us. So it's, it's actually inspiring. It's like, it's like talking to the future and seeing that the future is good, you know, because you're younger than me. You're, you know, you've got 30, what, 35 years younger than me. And um, it's really, it's a great thing to, to hear your sanity and your, the way that you think your decisions through and the way that you can see things in a balanced way. And I'm, I'm grateful, man. And I, I hope a lot of people will, hope a lot of people will, of my age, will be willing to do what I like to do, which is to realize that if you want to know, if you want to know where we're going, you don't talk to old people reflecting philosophically. You talk to, pe- to younger people and see where their heads are at. Cause that's where we can actually take a, take a thermometer reading on the future and realize that actually there's a lot to be hopeful for. So thanks for spending time today, man. I really appreciate you. And, you know, I'm always here for you. And uh, there's a kind of a, you know, there's a backwards and forwards that happens between us where, yeah. you know, we've, we've, got, we've got things we can always share with each other and teach each other. And I'm, and I'm sure we'll keep our regular calls going. I appreciate you so much, my man. Thank you for opening up the dialogue and for, uh, giving me the gift of your presence. I very much appreciate. Yeah. Back at you, man. See you soon. See you soon. Hey, welcome back you enjoyed that conversation with Raj Jana. We touched on many different um, topics, different potential future scenarios. And I asked him how these different things look through his eyes. And I think after having, while this is fresh in your mind, I'd love for you to take the dear old journal, you know, or just a, just a pad of paper like this and your favorite pen. And just take five or 10 minutes maybe just three to five minutes. Take a few minutes to jot down some notes on the best possible future in whatever parameter is most meaningful to you. If, you. if you're very familiar with finance, what do you think is the most viable future for finance if you're really concerned with the environment um, or any particular kind of um, resource? What do you see as the most viable future so that people of Raj's age and, in fact, people younger than that uh, have a possibility of an earth to inherit that is sustainable? Make a few notes on the best possible future now while this conversation is still fresh in your mind. And I'll meet you in the next episode of the Radical Brilliance podcast.